Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for February 28th, 2021. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Yes, and sitting in for Catherine this Sunday for the entire show, a very frequent guest and favorite guest of the Kudzu Vine, Rome City Commissioner Wendy Davis. Hi, gentlemen. Thanks for letting me join you tonight. Yes, I, you have so many titles. I, I just went with the Rome City Commissioner, but, um, you know, of course, DNC member, uh, among other things. Um, well, tonight we've got an exciting show. Um, author of Kamala's Way, Dan Moraine, is going to call in from California, and we're going to talk with him in about 20 minutes. And, of course, until then we have other kind of topics. And um, we're going to start off by a national um, conference that – it's been around for a while, but it seems like it gets more and more attention every time it meets, or at least every cycle. And this cycle um, is probably no different um, because of the, I guess we'll call it keynote or concluding speech that um, may have wrapped up. I know it's been going on for quite a while this afternoon, and that being of um, Donald Trump giving his first big public address since leaving office a little over a month ago. Uh, But there was a lot of things going on before this, including, you know, Ted Cruz making light of his trip to Cancun. He may have been the only one laughing. One of the most bizarre pieces of artwork uh, that almost looked like idolatry out of the old Charlton Heston film, um, The Ten Commandments, and then um, Kimberly Guilfoyle's pronouncement that Donald Trump would get more done from his desk in Mar-a-Lago than Joe Biden would, would from the Oval Office was just one of the more mind-boggling statements I've heard in quite some time. Um, Tim, I know you actually watched that speech and probably got to watch more of the convention than Wendy or I. Tell us what you've seen so far. Yeah, by the way, Donald Trump's speech, if anyone is counting, started at 4.43 this evening and wrapped up at 6.20. And I sat there somehow and watched all of it. Don't ask me how, but uh, I think Don Jr. actually had it right when in his remarks he referred to uh, the conference as TPAC, not CPAC. Um along with the usual attack stuff that you'd expect to see, there was uh, the overriding theme down there was that uh, the election was stolen and Trump actually is the legitimate president. And what that shows is that Trump is in charge of, you know, the Republican party. This is his party of, they scream fraud, drop boxes were uh, only installed by Democrats. There was a talk show host, uh, Wayne Dupree, that's who it was, and he pronounced that it was actually Antifa and Black Lives Matter up at the Capitol mixed in with a few Trump supporters, uh, and, it, you know, they were all in disguise, and, and they caused all the trouble. Um, we'll get to Trump's speech <laughs> in a minute, I'm sure, but that that was, uh, you know, about what you would expect to see um, a- along with a certain statue. I'm sure we'll also mention uh, the that, – that's about it. Yes. Well, Wendy, I was too busy to sit there and watch a uh, live video either – during the work week or weekend, but I, I've read online, and I bet you're kind of in that same situation. Um, what's some of your thoughts on what you've seen from uh, CPAC in Orlando so far? 
Well, I guess the most shocking thing really is that, um, you know, the worship of that golden Trump statue. And, and if that doesn't disturb some of the evangelicals who have been so much in the Trump camp, I'm, I'm not sure what it's going to take. Um, but, but this is very troubling. Um, and, um, so, um, the other thing is, you know, you expected to, to have, um, the, the guests predominantly being in the, the Trump, you know, election was stolen vain. I think the, the kind of the interesting thing is that, that Trump had to say he wasn't going to start an extra party, right? And that, uh, you actually have had some, uh, some, Senators, uh, you know, coming out and um, and saying that uh, maybe you know that it's not Trump's party and things like that. So that's not exactly what you heard at C conference, right? It was all Trump all the time and that same uh, messaging. But uh, I think it's interesting to see how that schism is going to resolve, or if it becomes a bigger problem, or if they get in line like Republicans have a, a record of doing. Yes, I think I saw something. They had nine breakout sessions about how the election was stolen and zero breakout sessions on why they lost. And, you know, that's like, you know, if you're a sports coach and you want to look at, you know, you lost the Super Bowl, the World Series, or whatever big sporting event, and all you want to talk about is the bad call that you feel may have been made, and I'm not in any way saying that there was any bad call on Election Day November. People voted, and that's just – Joe Biden's votes added up to millions more and millions more in the right places to where he had a 30-plus um, electoral college victory. Um, but I'm just saying if you feel that there's a bad call, and all you want to do is talk about that, and you in no way want to assess why you couldn't run the ball. Why you couldn't get you know third strike out, um, you know, when when it was that batter with people on base or whatever it may be. If you don't want to look at why less people voted for you, then you can't fix the problem. And, and to me, that's going to be a big problem for the Republican Party moving forward if they're not willing to put a real assessment of where they stand with the American people. Um, Tim, I guess you had heard that same stat. Why are so many people from top to bottom in denial about even having a breakout session on why, you know, the election was even close in their terminology? Because I told you it's Donald Trump's party. There's not going to be breakout <laughs> sessions at CPAC uh, about anything negative like that. Uh, the election was stolen. Donald Trump has said so, and that's the end of it. You know, uh, he has a 75% approval rating right now among Republicans. And, you know, that crowd was Trump's crowd there today. In these states, the state parties and all that, that's all run by Trump's people. All the speakers at CPAC were Trump's people. Those that are not Trump's people were not invited. Even Mike Pence was not uh, there. Mitch McConnell got the biggest boo of any Republican whose name Donald Trump called today, and he called a bunch of names. He got a bigger boo than Lynn Cheney did, or, or that what? Liz Cheney did, rather. Um, if, if you heard that speech today, it was a rehash of his old stuff, and, and the crowd ate it up. No, that was his crowd. They weren't going to do anything like that. I'd have been stunned if they had done a post-mortem on why they lost the election, they know why Trump told them why it was stolen. <laughs> Wendy, I know you, you're a political <laughs> consultant, and sometimes is this just a total denial and, and unwillingness to see reality? Uh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> absolutely. That is exactly what it is. And, um, and again, the thing that's sort of fascinating to me, um, like today I, I saw something that Senator Cassidy, again, not at CPAC, but today he was talking about how we need to acknowledge the fact that in the last four years, the Republicans have lost the House, the Senate, and the White House, right? And uh, I think he forgot to mention that, you know, Trump uh, lost the popular vote twice, 
right? <laughs> in that same time. So uh, some of them are waking up, but the rest of them are still in that sort of fever dream of, um, you know, Trump not even letting people call him the former president as if he's still president. And uh, so it's just, it's just, it it would be amusing if it weren't so damaging to our democracy. Yes, and so I think that Donald Trump finally said that he is considering running, or he could run in 2024. He wouldn't say he would, so he's going to continue to hold the party hostage. Uh, Tim, how detrimental is this for the GOP to try to move forward, even in 2022? Well, he said he's going to be out there leading the charge to take back the House and to win the midterms. And, you know, if everybody will stick with him, it'll be great. And he said, and who knows, I I may come back in 2024 and win for the third straight time, to which they all howled, of course, at that, you know, and hollered who didn't stomp their feet. Uh, Donald Trump is not going to change. Nothing and nothing is going to change as long as Donald Trump is in charge of that party. Uh, the few that are brave enough to speak out were all called out by name today. Everyone in Congress that that cast a vote he didn't like, they got called out and booed lustily today. Um, and, and he's living in an alternate universe. Get this. You guys are going to love this. He said, every senator I endorsed won. Well, in um, Georgia, Georgia, we know that's an outright lie, don't we? But he, but he stood there and said it, and they just clapped and hollered. They're living in an alternate universe, guys. I don't know what to do with these people except outvote them. Yeah, that, that is quite a, a reality there that, because there's a, probably a lot more places where he endorsed. Well, I thought he endorsed Martha McSally, uh, for instance, in um, Arizona. I mean, there, there's another one. Um, so, Wendy, I wanted to uh, ask you about that statement that Kimberly Guilfoyle made, I guess it was yesterday, that they really somehow believe that Donald Trump will get more done for America as an ex-president that Joe Biden will do as president. How does that even begin to work when you have absolutely zero um, lovers of power, unless I guess you have a foundation like a former presidents have had, which Donald Trump seems to not going to start that. Well, I mean, I guess maybe uh, they'll come up with something for him to start so he can, you know, grasp some more money, right? So, I mean, that's that's the thing he has perfected, right? <laughs> in his uh, short tenure in the national spotlight, he has figured out how to make money for himself and his family uh, through all these different uh you know, dark money opportunities and, you know, having this this organization and that organization and his family members get paid to work for all the organizations and it all comes back to him and all their events are at his properties. I mean, I guess you'd say he's taken grifting to an, to an art form there, right? So, um, so no idea what she has in mind. I guess it's sort of that same alternate universe that Tim was talking about. And I saw something that I would normally say – might be the craziest thing I've seen in a while, but we've seen so many different levels of, of wow, what on earth kind of things. Today I saw something that said that people were encouraging him to run for Congress there in Florida in, in, in 22, and when they took back the House, they'd make him Speaker of the House, and then they'd impeach um, Biden and Harris, and he'd be president again. So <laughs> there you go for another wow. fascinating scenario. We all think we want to be Grover Cleveland. He wants to be uh, John Quincy Adams. Tim? I mean, are you surprised? Don Jr., in his remarks, said that the Dems, that the leftists had barred the Muppets. Mr. Potato Head was transgender. I mean, they said these things for real. And then they expect me to take them seriously. Well, they can't. They can't talk about any of the things that 
they, you know, well, you would normally think they talk, you would talk about in a political conference, right? You can't talk about right. jobs or the economy with any kind of candor either because his pitiful, ridiculous, you know, disgusting handling of the the pandemic, right? It's, uh, <laughs> you know, hundreds of thousands of lives lost that didn't necessarily have to be lost and the the mess he left for the the current you know for the Biden administration and you know I'm I'm real impressed that they've been able to dig out of that hole as quickly as they have been able to. Yeah. Um. Uh, and by the way, just a quick aside before we go to our next topic, Tim, since you brought it up, you know, back in apparently the old days, like you know, decades ago, they sold you a sack of potato parts like you know ears and noses and whatnot and you just got an old potato out of the sack from the grocery store and you stuck the parts in your uh real potato so maybe that's what they need to do they just need to sell you a sack of man parts a sack of woman parts you take your parts and then you can get your potatoes and you can analyze them and you can see if that's a man potato or a lady potato and you can get deep into that if you're really into that kind of thing that's what you can spend your time doing figuring out the gender of your potato that you buy at the grocery store um i personally have better things to do with my time well let's go ahead and talk about this senate race in georgia in 2022 rafael warnock we assume he will run for re-election he, he serves the final two years of johnny isaacson's term um and david Perdue announced he would not run uh to kind of cross over if you will and and you know kind of do the other side of the tag team matchup. He is not running um, for U.S. Senate. Wendy, were you surprised that David Perdue decided not to run first off? Uh, no, what was actually more surprising is that they, that he did some weird exploratory committee, committee for like a week. That was stranger to me. I mean, I, I, it would, it is typical for somebody in that position to toy with the idea and want people talking about them, you know, we could list any number of people who love to have people talking about what they're going to run for. But for him to actually form the exploratory and, you know, a week or 10 days later go, nah, never mind. Um, that to me was stranger than him deciding that he was tired of all this mess. Well, I mean, do you think he formed the committee, you know, found enough money, whatever, put a poll in the field and the poll numbers were that bad? Because that's the only thing I can think of is that he would have just looked at it that long and gotten out that the poll numbers were that I mean, that, that's, that's a pretty reasonable guess, right? Um, but, you know, because there's going to be a primary there. And he didn't really have to face that, right? This yeah, well, he did how many ever years ago? Yeah. So, yeah, that was my thought there. Um, well, Tim, I'll ask you a related question. Do you think he would have been a better candidate than some other folks that are rumored to be running? Well, uh, you know, as far as the person, yes. As far as an effective candidate on the stump, I don't know about that. I think I think the private polling he did was not about the GE. I think it was about the primary and I think he figured out that he probably couldn't beat Collins if Collins ran. If, on the other hand, he wanted to reenter politics, he might could step back, and if Collins runs for the Senate, he could run against Kemp. And if Collins runs against Kemp, he could run for the Senate. Uh, but now he's taken the Senate off the table, which let, makes me think maybe that's what Doug Collins now, I think that's what that's all about, not about the general election, but about the primary. And I just uh, yeah. don't think Republican primary voters would select him because I don't believe he would be favored by Donald Trump. Well, who knows? Um, well, right now, I'm so excited to bring on to the Kudzu Vine the author of the brand-new book, Kamala's Way. Um, welcome to the Kudzu Vine, Mr. Dan Moraine. Well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, Mr. Moraine, before we get into the book, uh, just tell us about your background um, in, I guess, politics and journalism. Well, it's all it's all journalism. 
Uh, I've been a journalist in California for more than 40 years, for 27 years at the LA Times. Um, was the editorial page editor at the Sacramento Bee. Um, and then uh, I so-called retired uh, last March and, and then got a contract to write a book called Kamala's Way, An American Life. Yes. Well, um, so you got a contract. Did someone seek you out to write the book because they knew there'd be an audience, or did you know there'd be an audience and you kind of um, started pitching the project, if you will? No, it it, it was – uh, complete uh, serendipity. It, it, it fell into my lap. There was, uh, I had been doing a little bit of freelancing and uh, did a piece for the Washington Post uh, uh, about Kamala Harris that was pegged to run when, when uh, uh, Joe Biden uh, selected her. I mean, we weren't sure that she was that he was going to, but he did. And that was so. I think that was August 11th. And, and that editor happened to know, have a friend at Simon & Schuster was an editor who wanted somebody to write a book about, uh, about then Senator Harris. And, um, and then, and so he gave her my name and then separately, there was an agent calling around trying to find somebody to write a book about Kamala Harris. And, and she came to uh, uh, find the managing editor of the Washington or the Washington uh, of the Sacramento Bee, and he gave her my name. So two editors, two different sides of the country, gave gave uh, people my name, and so I was off to the races. Well, it makes total sense. Sacramento is the the heart of the California political scene, being the state capital. And I listened to the book, and it was excellent. I was so glad I was able to get it. Like on the first day, it came out in publication uh, from the library source that I have audio books. And first day, yeah. listened to it, just a few. So um, it, it yeah. seemed to work out yeah. well. well. I think that. I, th- I think the the, the woman who uh, reads the book is is just fabulous. I, I I love her voice. I could listen to her all day. Yes, well, and and I also listened to Senator Harris's biography, or now Vice President Harris. It was Senator Harris when she wrote it um, and came out. So I really had, I guess, some background. And when I read your book. I noticed that you talked more about her mother than you did her father, Donald Harris. And then in her book, it was the same thing. And really, I guess, even when you see her speak, she talks about the influence of her mother. She doesn't mention her father, Donald Harris, as much. Why do you gather that – and he's alive, so he, I mean, he's still having an impact on her life. Um, why does she mention him far less than her mother? Well – you know, it's it's not an authorized biography, and so she did not sit down and 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 answer um, uh, a question, questions for me, which is totally understandable. She was um, running for the vice presidency and had other things to do when I was when I was working on this book. I've of course talked to her many times in the past, but not for this book. Um, you know, it's not altogether clear. She has said uh, that he's a good guy, but they're just not that close. She was quoted as saying that back in, I don't know, 2003. Um, and in every opportunity, she talks about her mom. Her mother and father divorced. Um, their divorce was final in 1972. He had visitation rights. He, he was a professor at Stanford University, economics professor, so certainly a uh, uh, an intellectual. Um, he visited. He had weekend rights and could take him on uh, during the summers. And in fact, took him to his home in Jamaica. Uh, so they knew about his Jamaican right. When I say they, I mean Kamala Harris and her younger sister Maya. So they knew about their Jamaican roots. Um, but but both girls, Kamala and Maya. Uh, were raised by their mother, and uh, and you know it was their mother who who uh, got was a, uh, a research scientist, uh, a cancer researcher. Uh, she uh, she was an immigrant from from India. She she died in 2009. Um, uh, she uh, got passed over for a job at Berkeley, UC Berkeley, and she. Uh, uh, decided rather than sit around and brood, she would uh, go off to McGill University, not a not, you know pretty good place in, uh, to to do research as well. Um, 
uh, so Kamala and Maya Harris uh, spent, you know, really pretty formative years in uh, uh, in Canada and French-speaking uh, Montreal, um, uh, and uh, it, you know, it's just it's just the, the case that that Kamala Harris speaks incredibly fondly and in reverential terms about her mother, rarely mentions her dad. Yes. Well, um, you mentioned Montreal. I noticed you actually had more content on her, I guess, high school years than she did in her book. Um, and that is usually a formative time for people's life is in high school. Do you think that was more of a political thing? Why not to mention that she spent, um, you know, high school years in Montreal instead of America? Oh, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know because it, because it was an interesting time in her life. She, she learned a lot. She, she met some interesting people. I know that, that um, on her most recent phone call, the readout with, uh, with Prime Minister uh, Trudeau, she, um, uh, she, she, you know, she talked about her time in Montreal. So, um, so clearly, it's it's part of you know it's part of her identity. Um, you know, she's really it, it's interesting in that in that respect. I mean, this is a woman whose mom, whose mother, was from India. Her father was from Jamaica, and she spent age from age twelve to um, uh, well about eighteen in Montreal. So she is, although she grew up in Berkeley, California, she really is a very um, multicultured person. Uh, does not have at all a parochial uh, view of the world. I know she, um, her mom, mother brought her to India, so she met her uh, grandparents and, and uh, uh, her mother's siblings who are still, or who were in India at the time. And um, so, so I know that, that growing up, she had um, she had a worldview. It was not it was not um, uh, it, it, well. It was just not parochial. She's she's a multicultured person. Yes. Well, I have one final question before I pass this to my co-host um, Tim and Wendy uh, tonight, and that was about how her time as a district attorney, mainly in California. I'm sorry, in Oakland, not so much a state attorney general. She. Um, one time she didn't prosecute or she she prosecuted the person she didn't seek the death penalty and she got criticized for being too liberal but then at other times including in the 2020 presidential campaign she got criticized for being too tough on crime i guess too conservative is it kind of just a damned if you do damned if you don't situation in that role as prosecutor in um oakland yeah, well, so so she she started her career as a, as a deputy district attorney in Alameda County, which is Oakland. Um, uh, that's the main city in in Alameda County. Berkeley's also in Alameda County. Um, uh, and then she ran for district attorney. She went across the bay to San Francisco, um, and was a was a, a supervisor in the district attorney's office. And then she ran against the incumbent district attorney who had been her boss in 2003 and, and beat him. Um, so she has been a, a lifelong opponent of the death penalty. I mean, this is, this is one of her core issues. Um, and uh, uh, right after she was sworn in as California, as, as district attorney in San Francisco, there was a cop killing in, in the city of San Francisco, and and uh, you know people who who murder police officers. Well, you know that's 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 one way to get onto death row in in California, certainly at that time. And uh, uh, and she declined to file. She was true to her campaign pledge, which was to not seek death penalty, uh, a death judgment against anybody, no matter the crime. So she she stuck to that and. And took no small amount of grief for it, um, including from the senior senator from California, Diane Feinstein, uh, specifically called her out at at the officer's funeral, no less, uh, which was attended by several, um, well, hundreds, more than a thousand police officers, all of whom gave Diane Feinstein a standing ovation, not Kamala Harris. So it, it was, um, you know, she took a stand. Um, now. It is the case, though, that she could have gone further on on other issues when she was district attorney and certainly when she was California attorney general, which is where I really uh, got to know her a little bit better. 
because uh, I covered that race and, and, and wrote many columns about her when she was uh, when she was attorney general. Um, she could have gone further. She could have uh, been uh, uh, further to the left, but I, you know, I, my feeling is she she went about as far as she thought she could go politically, and and uh, um, you know, in some instances she she pressed the boundary of law, and in other in- instances she she pulled back and didn't take stance. Um, certainly is the case, and so she got no small amount of grief from from the left, uh, from her left, uh, the left of the Democratic Party. Uh, uh, for for not taking stance, so uh, I mean you're correct. Yes. Well, I'm going to pass it over to Tim Shiflett, and he'll pass it over to Wendy Davis with some more questions about your book and Kamala Harris's life. Tim. Great. Good evening, Miss Moraine. Thank you for being. Hey, with Tim. Us it's Dan. Tonight. But go ahead. <laughs> okay, Dan. Yeah. Um, why did you choose Kamala's Way as the title of your book? Well, I had a really excellent editor who said, you know, I think this should be the title. And and I thought it was, I I love the title. Um, It's it's Kamala's Way in American Life. Um, And, Mm -hmm. you know, Kamala's Way is is, uh, in part her path or the path to get from where she uh, was born in Oakland, grew up in Berkeley, and and now is a heartbeat away from the presidency. Uh, but then the other meaning, obviously, is 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 her style, her, um, you know, how she how she goes about her her business. Mm-hmm. That's how the title and, came about. And 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 what are, are are let me put it this way: Was Willie Brown the most important political player in her development as a politician? Well, certainly. So, for your listeners who don't know who Willie Brown uh, is, he he was the speaker, longest tenured speaker of the California Assembly. Uh, uh, he was uh, a very influential uh, legislator, and then he uh, ran for mayor in 1994, 1995, elected in 1995 as mayor of San Francisco. Um, uh, he he was uh, uh, he was uh, an incredible power. In, in California politics and politics nationally, he had a national uh, uh, he had a national profile certainly in the 90s and, and up through his time as, as as mayor, friends with Bill Clinton and every other major Democrat. Um, so um, and he was friends with Kamala Harris. They both they had a relationship. Now Willie Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, had many relationships during his time as as assembly speaker. Uh, it it was well known. Um, he didn't. He never hit it. Uh, he was married at the time, but wasn't living. Hasn't lived with his 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 wife. Uh, they're still married, as far as I know. Uh, hasn't lived with his wife for for many many years. And and you know it it was a it was a very public uh, 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 relationship. Um, Clearly, Willie Brown uh, uh, opened doors for Kamala Harris. Mm-hmm. Clearly, also politicians uh, you know, Willie opened doors for Willie Brown when he ran for first ran for California Assembly in 1964. Would not have won uh, if uh, if a congressman by the name of Phil Burton went on to become one of the most powerful members of Congress um, hadn't been uh, on his team. Uh, hadn't you know pushed uh, pushed people to support Willie Brown, um, so of course he helped her. Um, uh, uh, now, by the time she ran for district attorney, their relationship was over by for for eight years. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure they they remained on on some sort of terms. I don't know. Again, she didn't talk to me for this book, and and although I have spoken to Willie Brown many times over the decades he he begged off this one as well um so um she has said that that he was he became an albatross uh, uh, around her neck and and it really was was if you read the book she was really quite dismissive and derisive of of willie brown by the time she ran for attorney general in 2003 her opponents mm-hmm. in 2003 tried to make it an issue um, obviously, it didn't work. She won. <laughs> so, 
and in terms of the most influential person, I don't know. Um, you know, she was pretty good. Uh, uh, had a pretty strong alliance with Barack Obama. He was pretty uh, helpful yeah, to her uh, <laughs> on more than one occasion. And then there are a bunch of people. There are people whose names your listeners wouldn't know. You know, 99% of people in California, even in San Francisco, wouldn't know, who are incredibly influential. We've got a guy named Mike, Mark Buell, who's a, a wealthy politico in San Francisco, was her fundraising chairman. You know, she raised a million dollars in that first race it, with contribution wow. limits of $500 a pop. So so imagine doing that. And wow. you know, this, that was Mark Buell as finance chair. Well, that's not Willie Brown, it's Mark Buell. So anyway, sure, Willie Brown was, was influential, helpful. Um, uh, he's, he's, and, and, you know, it's, it's pretty much in the rearview mirror as near as I can tell. Yeah. So – but she's remarried, uh, for one thing, oh, yeah. <laughs> so as, as we all know, this, the first to yeah, the second gentleman. <laughs> throughout yeah. this interview, the subject of the Bay Area keeps coming up, Oakland and San Francisco. Now, to the average viewer from outside this state, we can't help but notice that the Bay Area is a hotbed of absolute political star power not only in California, but on the national level. What is it about the Bay Area that that makes it that way? Well, you know, that's really a perceptive question. And, and, it, and, and you're, absolutely, you're absolutely right. So, um, it, it, so, so San Francisco, and, you know, we all know San Francisco's got some really wacky politics. I mean, you know, they've got a school board there that wants to rename Abraham Lincoln High uh, School, right? I mean, give me a break. Washington <laughs> High, is, is, they, they want to rename it. Um, uh, because, you know, we all know what George Washington and Abraham Lincoln did, and this is not politically correct, right? So it's wildly crazy politics in San Francisco sometimes. It's also really tough politics. And in order to make it through the city of San Francisco and to emerge uh, uh, sort of unscarred or at least with your scars healed, you have to be pretty tough. And so, I mean, my feeling is it goes back to Phil Burton, who you know, I mentioned uh, a little while ago. He was a member of Congress, incredibly influential, built a huge um, uh, political organization, uh, uh, machine and it was the Burton machine and then it was the Burton Brown machine. Phil Burton's younger brother John Burton uh, uh, was a member of the legislature, elected the same year as Willie Brown. Um, went to Congress and then had some difficulties, uh, and, but then he he remade himself and came back as probably the most influential legislator I ever saw in my 30 years covering Sacramento. Mm-hmm. Um, so. It, but then Nancy Pelosi sits in, Speaker Pelosi sits in the yeah. seat that Phil Burton sat in. Phil Burton died uh, years ago. Um, Diane Feinstein came out of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kamala Harris's uh, predecessor, Barbara Boxer, uh, came out what had been a, mm-hmm. had been an aide to John Burton. So, so yeah, these are these are um, uh, these are politicians who who are really good and they they've got moves and and uh, you know I, I've covered them all and they're they it's not that they're without flaws they are you know they are they they there are warts there but one thing that, mm-hmm. that I think everybody who knows these people would would readily acknowledge they're really good at politics Kamala Harris is a really good politician you can disagree with her on on issues but you see her speak, or you see her, uh, uh, you know, shaking hands in a room. I mean, she's a very good retail politician, and mm-hmm. somebody who's covered a lot of politicians over forty years. Um, you know, I know how to ask a, a, a tough question, and I, I've asked tough questions with Kamala Harris, and and she's good at answering them, and she's really good at mm-hmm. not answering them. She knows how to. Uh, duck a question with the best of them, and 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 she knows how to give a really thoughtful, um, you know, sincere answer too. So you know she's she's just good at what she does. 
Okay. One more question, and then I'm going to pass it over to Wendy. Um, if you could get the opportunity to interview the vice president, and I know for, for our listeners, you really tried to arrange that interview for this book, and, and because of, I guess, how busy she is, you were unable to do that. But if you could get the opportunity to interview her now, what would be the first thing you would ask her that you were unable to address in the book because you did not interview her? Mm-hmm. Well, um, yeah, you're right. I did uh, as, as soon as as soon as Simon and Schuster, uh, uh, you know, basically hired me to to, to write a book. Uh, I sent an email to the Biden campaign to her press person. Uh, Asking, you know, laying out what I was doing and asking for time, and 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 then, and, you know, throughout the reporting process of this in September, mm-hmm. October, beginning of November, I kept sending emails about specific questions that I had, and they were always very polite, but they all, you know, the answer was always no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so if I had, if it, so if I had. Um, uh, an hour to sit down with her. If I had a half hour to sit down with her, I, w- I would want to know some personal questions. I mean, her her professional life is all on. I mean, we know what it is. We we know mm-hmm. who all her campaign donors are. We know what all her policy positions are. Uh, so so we know all that. That's all public record. But there's a lot of personal stuff that that is just opaque to me. Why, you know, what is it about her father? I mean, what, you know, I mean, he seems to be a really decent guy, you know, hardworking, obviously an intellectual, um, you know, had a hard, you know, they, there was a divorce. So, you know, I'm sure there was, there was, um, uh, you know, trouble at home. Uh, but Kamala Harris was a baby. You know, she was, she was five years old when they split up. So, mm-hmm. um uh, you know, so I'm not sure how much of that she really remembers. I, I don't know. So anyway, I would ask her about her father. You know, one of the questions that, that I have uh, of her is um, uh, she was, um, when she was at Howard University, uh, she marched uh, against apartheid. Uh, uh-huh. So that was 19, 1986, 87. Um, uh, and then, you know, California was pretty important. Uh, in in the whole anti-apartheid um, uh, movement, because California mm-hmm. uh, divested its pension fund of all holdings in in, uh, uh, in South Africa, and partly, large part, because of, of Willie Brown's uh, legislative skill, and also uh, the then Assemblywoman, now uh, Congresswoman Maxine Waters, um, pushed for that divestment. And they got a Republican uh, governor, by the way, to sign it, George Dugnation. Uh Anyway, uh, in 1990, she was the first-year deputy district attorney in Alameda County, and Nelson Mandela came and spoke at the Oakland Coliseum where the Oakland uh, A's play and where the Raiders used to play. Um, I was there. I covered that uh, speech. It was, it was a really a pretty incredible day. I covered it for the L.A. Times. I wonder whether she was there, and if she was there, what did she think? And, and uh, oh, so I would yeah. ask her about that. And then, and then 1991, um, you know, we all remember. I think those of us who were around uh, the Clarence Thomas hearings. Well, mm-hmm. she was a first-year deputy district attorney. She must have identified with Anita Hill. Um, uh, and you know, what did she think of that? And of course, we all know who the uh, chair of the Judiciary Committee was then uh, Joe Biden. So mm-hmm. these are the right. you know I would want to know these sort of the, these these uh, questions, the answers to which only she uh, could provide. Well, I thank you for that, sir. And with that, I'm going to pass it over to Wendy. Wendy, is Wendy there? Wendy. <laughs> David, we might have lost Wendy. Well, that's that, that's okay. Although I would have been delighted to answer your questions, Wendy. And I muted myself so that, that as I was talking to no one, because um, you don't want to get feedback <laughs> when you're in such a good interview. Tim's asking great questions. 
Well, Dan, uh, and I heard you say don't, you know, use your first name, so I am not being disrespectful. Yes, by all means. If Wendy comes on in, we'll let her ask some questions, but I wanted to let you have a chance. If people, like, have heard you and or read the book or going to read the book, and they're like, I want to find out more about Dan Moraine's writings, you said you retired from the Sacramento Bee. What's the best way people could read you day-to-day, week-to-week? Well, I, you know, uh, you could you could Google me. <laughs> I'm all over Google. Uh, uh, you know, I wrote 3,000 stories more or less for the LA Times and a, and a bunch for the Sacramento Bee, and then I and then I retired not from the Sacramento Bee, and I retired from a a, a, a nonprofit news organization called Cal Matters uh, last March. Um, so. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm out there, and then and then I've been doing a little freelancing. I write for the LA Times, write for the Washington Post, write for um, Kaiser Health News. So you know, they're they're out there, but um, uh, yeah, I'm not writing as as uh, uh, constantly as I was for 40 years. Um, so, but you know, I've been out there a fair 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 bit uh, this past year, and we'll be out more this year, God willing. And yes. so long as people keep hiring me to write things. Yeah, well, hopefully so. I mean, the book was excellent, and it sounds like, you know, I mean, you're writing even in retirement for sources like the Washington Post and with Kamala Harris, uh, you know, becoming uh, more and more important in, you know, the American political story, uh, they'll come to you. And then, of course, you know, the, the California's making news still with, um, you know, a lot of elections coming up in the near future. So, we hope people. Oh will yeah, well, we're gonna. Reading. We're, yeah, well, we'll. Yeah, I've been writing a little bit about the 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 looming recall of Gavin Newsom, our governor out mm-hmm. here. Um, mm-hmm. Not sure that's a great wow. idea, but I think that that's where <laughs> we're. You know, we're hurtling toward that. I covered the 2003 recall of Gray Davis, and so our you know our laws permitted out here, and and uh, you know it, the law is what it is. Yes, um, it seems like uh, now we want to impeach presidents, and I don't mean the current one. I meant like when we, you know, people would have ideas for um, people like George W. Bush and then Barack Obama, and that was after Clinton's, and now in California they um, seemingly want to recall every governor they're unhappy with, which is crazy too. Well, Mr. Rain, we want to thank you for coming on the Kudzu Vine Um tonight and maybe at some point in the future as you continue to write we can get you back for another topic be delighted to but you got to call me dan dan i apologize dan thanks again (laughs) all right thanks a lot bye now bye yes thanks for being on Um, i'll tell you what if you have not picked up the book it's a quick listen so i'm assuming it's a quick read as well and he's right the, the 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 woman that got to read it um, is, is an excellent voice uh, for audiobooks. Uh, Tim, I am going to try to get Wendy back on here in a second. Um, in the meantime, I think Wendy talked about uh, uh, David Perdue. Had you had your say on David Perdue not running? Yes, I had, but I'll be glad to bump my gum some more about it because I have <laughs> some more stuff to say about it. We'll do that. All right. Um David Perdue is a practical person, as I said. If David Perdue sees that there is no path for David Perdue to win, then David Perdue is not going to run. I still am a little mystified as to why, though, he would cut off that avenue uh, to the Senate race, it seems to me like he would wait, he would bide his time. If he wants to get back in, just run in the race that Doug Collins does not want to run in. I sincerely believe he has seen some polling, though, that shows that he would not do well with Doug Collins. There's another thing. Purdue played golf with Donald Trump last weekend. And apparently the conversation, shall we say, did not go that well. And while Purdue was talking about forming committees, looking at this Senate race, giving a hard look at things, the next thing you know, 
we have David Perdue saying, well, uh, I'm not going to run. And it had to have something to do with Donald Trump and and whatever was said between them on that golf course down in Florida last weekend. I think you could be right that that um, meeting would have been a problem because, you know, Donald Trump may have just simply said, I'm going to play the field um, or I have someone in mind. And then, of course, that gets into Doug Collins. Although, you know, Doug Collins finished third in that race. I mean, I I do think Doug Collins is a credible candidate to run. Um, I, you know, is their nominee credible? That doesn't mean the winning formula, but credible. Um, but he's not this political 800-pound gorilla that just clears the field on the Republican side. Um you know, and, it, just, it just makes no sense. And, David, you know, for our listeners who might be scratching their heads wondering why Wendy isn't talking, we've had some technical difficulties, and we've lost Wendy. I, I'm, I'm sorry, Wendy. Uh, David's been trying to get you back, but it's live radio, and that happens sometimes, right, David? Yes, and we knew that it was going on, and as I'm trying to keep coherent political thoughts, and people can say that's debatable always, um, I'm trying to get Wendy back in the best I can um, without luck. And I know when people probably heard that she was on, um, she was probably, they're probably more interested in her than they were the two of us. Um, but yeah, we'll really. keep trying. <laughs> but we had planned tonight um, to do this. We were trying to do a buy, sell, hold. Now, we've got a whole bunch of people that the Atlanta Constitution um, had identified for buy, sell, hold. And so let's go ahead and let's do the buy, sell, hold. Tim started out with Doug Collins since we've kind of alluded to him. Um, Doug Collins, I'm buying. The four-term congressman, he's from Hall County, which is a conservative stronghold. Trump would most likely support him. Uh, if he ran, uh, and the only thing that makes me hesitate, he might decide to go after Kemp instead. Trump might talk him into it. What do you think? Yeah, I think that he is going to be Donald Trump's preferred candidate. Um, I think for the um, primary race, have to buy him as being somebody, um, you know, that this legit will. Um, now, as far as the general. You know, he's tried to identify as, as to the right of Kelly Loeffler, and Kelly Loeffler kept moving, so, uh, Leffler kept moving so far to the right, it was hard to see. So if this race comes down to can we get some swing voters because the, that's where the election's decided, and I think if you look at this, you know, if Raphael Warnock understands how to turn out votes like he did, he and, uh, uh, he and John Ossoff did, this um, special election again, and then you have on the top of that, it's going to be the gubernatorial year, and you have to think that Stacey Abrams is going to be the nominee. Her turnout machine is going to be working for her. Democratic turnout is probably going to be as good as it gets in a, in a gubernatorial year. So therefore, you're uh-huh. going to have to probably um, figure out how to um, get some swing voters because maximizing you know, Donald Trump's vote without Donald Trump on the ballot seems a little trickier. Um, so I don't know um, what what you do about that, Tim. Well, I mean, it, it's trickier in the general election, but getting Donald Trump support and Donald Trump's voters is just paramount to winning the nomination still in this state for for any for any office, and I just got to think Collins is the guy in whichever race he decides to go. He is an unapologetic Trump supporter, has been far from the beginning, and I, I, I just think, you know, he he <laughs> I'm strongly buying him, David. What do you think? Yeah, I guess in the end, you buy him even in general. I buy him more in the, the, the um, the uh, 
primary than I would the general because I do think right. in a traditional political scenario in which we, you know, grew up in, you would want to try to go back towards the middle. We know now in the current environment, base voting um, and, and turn out your base is even more important than it used to be. And so it's kind of changed the, the political calculus a bit. But if it's a one or two point race, I, I do think that middle still becomes important. And, and he's not yeah. set up to get that. Um, so that yeah, is the liability. Unfortunately, unfortunately, if you are in the Republican Party, you have got to get the nomination. And right now, I believe the only way to get that nomination is to get the um, full in endorsement of Donald Trump. And that, and that, and that's what they're all going to do. That's what they're all going to have to do and then worry about the general election after it's all they can do. Yes. Um, well, let's do one more name tonight. And that's one I think we have to do because – she spent so much money uh, on trying to uh, win a Senate race and really did not. Finished uh, uh, second to Raphael Warnock in the first round and then um, seemed to lo- amazingly lose ground and the, the runoff even more so, and that would be Kelly Leffler. Uh, she also uh, sold her WNBA team. Um, and in some ways, uh, you don't think almost against her will that would have been not her plan to sell that team but she used it as a campaign prop and it didn't work out and so now she has no senate seat no wmba team um you know the, the, this senate race was just not or this i guess getting tapped by brian kemp did not work out as she planned for it to but let's say she has to run from the you know ground level she has to earn the nomination. Tim, buy, sell, or hold Kelly Leffler. Sell. She's not going to beat Doug Collins. Not this time. I know. I know that she, you know that that she did before. But it's not going to happen this time uh, because she's going to be on the outside looking in. She she's not going to have the power of the incumbency to help her. Um, she seems to be trying to do a Republican version of what Stacey Abrams did on the Democratic side. She's announced the formation of this group to organize, to register Republican voters, and to maximize Republican turnout. Well, that sounds suspiciously like exactly what Stacey Abrams did. Only I don't know if it's going to work uh, on her side, although she would have the money to do such a thing, I'm thinking that uh, Donald Trump maximizes their voter turnout more than any any other effort would do, and I, I don't think it would help her that much. And Trump just will not endorse her uh, over Collins. He just he won't do it. Yeah, I, I think that's a big thing. Is Donald Trump's not going to endorse her early? He's probably not going to endorse at all. I guess her best case scenario, one, she has money to, to just burn on this, uh, so that yeah. makes her plausible to an extent. Um, but then I guess uh, if, if her new bestie Marjorie Taylor Greene endorsed her early, she seems to be maybe the most popular person in the Georgia Republican Party now, uh, which tells you everything you need to know about where that party's at. Um, but that would kind of give her some foundation, she had a much better foundation last time and couldn't make it pay off without the incumbency label. How does it pay off? I see no way it does. Um, I would sell it. If I were her, I would just, um, you know, we've all picked up a hobby and it didn't go well and we quit it. We forgot it. That's yours, Kelly politics. Um, just forget right. it. Quit, quit worrying about it. Um, and just move on, uh, to, to the next phase of life and unfortunately if you were into owning a sports team you sacrifice that as well um you know so, so you're gonna have to find a whole nother two hobbies if you will right right so <laughs> yeah um well um I, I hate that this happened uh with wendy not to get her thoughts on these buy sell holds we did um because she's always such a great guest have no idea because there's no weather in the sky 
um, right yet, so that's not the issue here in um, northwest Georgia. But we want to thank Dan Moraine, um, author of Kamala's Way, for coming in. Um, next week, we're going to talk about the political media landscape with Eric Bolhart. Um, and I think it's one of the most fascinating conversations is what happens to political media moving forward, assuming it was the post-Trump era, but it seemingly not. But it is the era after Donald Trump has set fire to Fox News, if you will, and they try to continue to, to move on. Um, with these rating slumps. So we're going to have a really inter interesting conversation. I'm assuming Catherine will be back with us. And um, until then, it's been the Code Zivine. Good night, folks. Good night, everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be?